When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun. Welcome in, everybody. Episode Dale, 7. Kirk 77 is on the of the phone. podcast. It's the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, October 9th, 2023. People, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody just enjoyed an insane Saturday of college football. Two weeks ago, by the way, we had coaches gone wild. That was the day Ryan Day called out Lou Holtz. What was Saturday as I think coaches just went cuckoo on Saturday. Bad day for Steve Sarkeesian. Bad day for Jimbo Fisher, Mario Cristobal, Lincoln Riley, and we are going to discuss it all. We'll open Red River Shootout. Incredible game. We will discuss the ramifications for both programs coming out of the Oklahoma win. From there, we will go to College Station. We have to talk about the ramifications there. Alabama controls its own destiny in the SEC West. Texas A&M, not a good day for Jimbo Fisher. I think it felt like Saturday was the day that everybody turned on him for good. And then we'll wrap the show with just everything else that happened. Mario Cristobal, what are you doing? USC, what are you doing? Kentucky getting smoked by Georgia. Louisville with the great win over Notre Dame. Maybe a little Michigan, maybe a little bit of LSU. We got a jam-packed Monday show. Before we get started, should give everyone a quick reminder. Uh, legal sports betting has come to the state of Kentucky, and I have some great news for listeners of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, and that is that we have partnered with DraftKings Sportsbook and the DraftKings Sportsbook app, and DraftKings has an incredible offer for first-time customers who are signing up for the service. The, ser- the offer comes to all listeners of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. you got to be a first-time user. Here is what you need to know. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app, bet $5 on any game, and you get $200 in bonus bets instantly when you use the promo code TORRES. That's TORRES, T-O-R-R-E-S. Here's what you need to know. Here's how you get involved. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app. Bet $5 on any game, college football, pro, uh, MLB, whatever you want to bet on. All you got to do is bet $5 and you get $200 bonus bets instantly when you use the code Torres. Thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you for everybody for your support. Thank you for DraftKings for being an incredible partner. So fired up to be working with them this fall. With that said, there is no more time to waste and it is time to get to the topic of the day. 
And the topic of the day, bluntly, I think we could start in one of two places. There were major ramifications in Dallas at the Red River Shootout. Yes, we still call it the Red River Shootout on this show. And of course, there was major ramifications in College Station as well. But my hunch is everybody wants to start talking Red River. So let's talk Texas, Oklahoma, as Oklahoma wins 34 to 30, signature win for Brent Venables, signature win for Oklahoma in this era. And for anybody who doubted the Sooners, they are officially back as a playoff contender and back in the top 10 of college football. First of all, when I think about this game, a couple things stand out. One, just everything we love about college football, right? And and we don't have to get into the pomp and circumstance, but I do think it is important. I mean, you know, Cotton Bowl, Texas State Fair, two crazy fan bases, a rivalry that outside of last year always delivers. And by the way, last year, Oklahoma was banged up. Dylan Gabriel was hurt, right? But it always delivers. And from the second this game started, you could feel how important it was to these two teams, not just because first place in the Big 12 is on the line, not just because, uh, you know, a pathway to the Big 12 championship game and maybe the college football playoff is on the line, but just because how badly these two teams want to beat each other. I thought it was interesting. Kirk Herbstreet said during the game, like, we've been to a bunch of great games this year. The speed and physicality and the hitting in this game are unlike anything we've ever seen. You could feel it from the the, the moment this this game started. Two interceptions early for Texas, uh, a blocked punt for Texas that led to seven uh, fake reverse handoffs on kickoffs. Both teams were playing to win from the beginning, and it was incredible. Now, in terms of the game itself, to me, I'll be blunt. I think it came down to really kind of two moments in this game. Both went in Oklahoma's favor. Both kind of came at the expense of Steve Sarkeesian, who I did not think had a good day. Now, to be clear and to be fair, we'll have Oklahoma fans listen to this segment on podcast or YouTube. I'm not taking away from what you did. I'm not saying that the wrong team won. Oklahoma deserved to win. Oklahoma was the better team, and Oklahoma fans should celebrate. But I also just don't think it was a very good day for Steve Sarkeesian. The two moments to me that stand out in this game, when I think back on this game, a couple things. One, late in the third quarter, everybody knows what I'm talking about. Texas is down 27 to 20. They are driving. They are on the one-yard line, first and goal on the one. And Steve Sarkeesian is, and you guys know me, I'm not scheme guy. I'm not X's and O's guy. I'm not draw plays in the dirt guy. But Steve Sarkeesian is, in my opinion, the best offensive mind in college football in terms of scheming creative stuff to get his guys open. You have first and goal on the one down seven late in the third quarter. And he turned, he, it felt like he wanted to prove he was Jim Harbaugh or old school Big Ten, three yards in a cloud of dust. Because for three straight plays, he just lined up a bunch of big guys in the backfield and tried to get that, that, that touchdown. Didn't get it on first down. Didn't get it on second down. Didn't get it on third down. Then on fourth down, he runs a screen pass. He kind of realizes, oh, crap, I got to score here. Runs a screen pass. It gets stopped. Texas ends up getting zero points on that drive, trailing 27 to 20. Can't get zero there. Even if you get three, remember, it was a scenario where what was the final score of this game? It was 34 to 30, so maybe three doesn't end, doesn't end up being good enough. You don't know. But at the same time, you can't come away with nothing there. And so you don't get anything there. And then I thought late in the game, final drive, Steve Sarkeesian coached a little bit scared. 
Now, it's hard to blame him for taking the field goal for people who did not see the game. Basically, Texas uh, had ultimately ended up tying the game. It was 27-27 at that point. Texas has the ball. Um, and, and, and ultimately, what you need to know on this final possession for Texas, all game long, we have been told by the announcers, by the people that spent time with these two teams, Steve Sarkeesian does not trust his kicker, okay? So Texas is in field goal range, and on third down, they have a third and 10. And in my head, again, I'm not scheme guy, but you think, okay, maybe Sark tries to throw it deep because if he gets a first down, he can bleed out the clock and Oklahoma will not get the ball back. Instead, he decides to run a run play. He gets six yards. It sets up fourth and four, and they do ultimately kick what ends up being the go-ahead field goal. And so on the one hand, you can't really blame Steve Sarkeesian for taking the field goal there, but I've been told all game that you don't trust the kicker. And if you don't trust the kicker, I don't really care if you're six yards back from where you ended up kicking the ball. I don't care if it's fourth and four or fourth and 10. I'd rather try to get that first down to put yourself in position where, again, you can chew up the clock, bleed out the clock, and then you can still kick the field goal. And at worst case, you're going to overtime. And if not in worst case, then you're in a scenario where you can kick a field goal to win it with much less time on the clock. Instead, Oklahoma gets the ball back. And instead, you know, we had some old school Sooner magic. For people who are new to college football, Barry Switzer, I used to call it Sooner magic. They always find a way to win. And that is exactly what happened as Dylan Gabriel gets the ball back. The Oklahoma quarterback, five plays, 75 yards, under a minute and a half. They get into the end zone and Oklahoma ends up winning the game. Now, in terms of big picture stuff. Let's talk about the big picture ramifications for both teams, because I think there's a lot that we learned. You know, one from the Oklahoma perspective, before we get into what does this mean? What about that? What about this? What about the playoff? What about the Big 12? Let me start with something pretty straightforward. I think that many people, including me, including this guy right here, I like to tell you all the stuff I get right. I was dead wrong on Brent Venables. And it really goes back to this game last year. And I understand that Oklahoma came in without Dylan Gabriel, their starting quarterback, and they were banged up. But they had gotten embarrassed by TCU a week before. They had lost to Kansas State. They came into this game on a two-game losing streak. The defense was getting gashed time and time again. And after they lost to Texas in the manner in which they did, this is what I said on this show. I said, I'm not saying that it's ever going to happen. You're never going to fire a head coach in your first year, whatever. But I think it's very clear that Brent Venables isn't the right guy and that this program is going in the wrong direction. And my argument at the time was pretty straightforward. I understand he did not inherit a lot of talent on the defensive side of the football from you-know-who, I won't mention his name, Oklahoma fans, the previous head coach who's now at Southern Cal. I also understand that Oklahoma fans will tell you there were culture issues in the locker room, maybe not the perfect group of guys. Again, not here to blame a former coach, not here to blame any individual, but that's what Oklahoma fans told you. But what I said at the time was pretty straightforward. I said, I don't care about roster numbers. I don't care about this. I don't care about that. At the end of the day, Brent Venables is a defensive guy. The Oklahoma defense in you-know-whose final year in 2021 was not terrible, and Oklahoma's defense last year was. And so I said, I'm not saying he's going to get fired. And I talked about it. I said, listen, there's stuff on this show. 
I talk about what could happen, what should happen, what will happen. And I said, it's not going to happen. It will not happen. And it's not that it could happen. But should it happen, you should consider moving on from Brent Venables right away. And I was dead wrong. I got to own it because now Oklahoma is 6-0 and coming out of this game. And when you look at the present and future of Oklahoma, a couple things stand out. One, how do you not feel good about Oklahoma? How, how do you not feel good about your program if you're an Oklahoma fan? One, you're 6-0. and You're one of only two Big 12 teams that's undefeated in the Big 12 standings. West Virginia, of all teams, is the other one. But you look at the rest of the schedule, and I know, listen, in college football, you can't take any Saturday for granted, right? Any Saturday, something bad can happen. But you look at the schedule. Oklahoma has a grand total of one ranked team left on the schedule at Kansas three Saturdays from now. Yes, Kansas is ranked. Rest of the schedule, Central Florida, which stinks, at Kansas, at Oklahoma State, which stinks, West Virginia at home, BYU on the road, TCU at home. And so you're in great shape to meet all of your expectations because at this point you have the head-to-head win against Texas and you can afford a loss and still be in position to do everything you want to do. And I'm not saying you, you, you root for a loss, but what I'm just saying is if you're Oklahoma, even if you trip up along the way, you're getting to that Big 12 championship game and you're playing ultimately probably Texas again to go to the college football playoff. And so when I look at the present and future of this program, I think it's bright because Venables, to his credit, recruited his butt off last year, top five class. He's doing great this year. They got a really good class headlined by a five-star defensive lineman. And that defense looks like what a Brent Venables defense looks like. Fast, aggressive, number one scoring defense in the Big 12. Number one nationally in turnover margin. They create chaos. They create confusion. They create turnovers. That is the, the, the fundamentals of a Brent Venables defense. So Oklahoma, you've got to feel great about your present, about your future, about your path, by the way, all of a sudden to a playoff, which was something nobody was talking about coming into this year. From the Texas perspective, listen, I just said it. I don't think it was Steve Sarkeesian's best day, but I don't think it's time to panic because the one thing I'll give credit to Texas for, first of all, that Alabama win looks better and better and better every week. It's something that will always, um, you know, it, it'll, it'll, I, I don't think there's a scenario where we get to the end of the year and all of a sudden it's like, ah, oh, they beat Alabama, who cares? So that's one. But two, listen, one team's got to lose this game, but it's kind of the same for Texas. Your whole pathway is still ahead of you, right? We've had a handful of undefeated college football playoff champions, but we've had a lot that make the playoff and that win the playoff with one, with one loss. I'm not sitting here saying Texas is going to win the playoff, but from here, yes, your margin of error is thinner, but guess what? Who cares? Guess what? You are still in a great spot going forward. You look at this Texas team. First of all, you know, you, you played your butt off. You outgained Oklahoma. I don't want to say you were better because I don't think that you were. But that was a game that you could have won if a couple of things go your way. Now you have a bye. No one left on your schedule is ranked. The best team on paper is probably a 3-2 and two Kansas State team, maybe a 4-1 and one BYU team, but your road games are against a mediocre Houston team, a TCU team that's up and down, and Iowa State, which is certainly up and down as well, sitting at 3-3. Three and three. And so for Texas, it's about regrouping, going into the bye week, and saying, you know what? Everything that we want is still ahead of us. We wanted to compete for a Big 12 championship. That's right there for you. 
We wanted to compete for a playoff berth. That's still right there in front of you. Go there and take care of business. Do what you got to do the rest of the way. I think for college football fans, I mean, this is great because now look at this thing. It's setting up to be an Oklahoma. That game that you just got, it's setting up to be a rematch about seven, eight weeks from now in Dallas at Jerry World the first Saturday of December. So think about the fact that as great as that game was, we're about to get it again, and there's a very good chance that it is a de facto college football playoff game. If Texas wins out, and if Oklahoma, which is 6-0 right now, goes 5-1 or 6-0, it means that every, both if both teams enter that game with zero or one losses, it means that we're talking about two teams playing for a college football playoff spot. It's essentially going to be a de facto playoff game. So that is unbelievable. By the way, even if Texas loses, if they get back to that to that game, then all of a sudden they're playing spoiler. You know, So there's just so much that could be at stake about five, six weeks from now. The last thing, I got to take another L, and I got to give credit where it's due. When Texas and Oklahoma announced they were going to the SEC, I said, these two programs are crazy. I said, I get it. I get that you're tired of the Iowa, no disrespect, but it's the truth. You're tired of the Iowa States. You're tired of the Kansases. You're tired of the Baylors. You want those big names, those big brands coming into your stadiums. It's just sexier to have Georgia and Florida and LSU and whoever on the schedule than it is Kansas State and Baylor and whomever. But at the same time, I said, listen, the pathway just got way tougher. Now, obviously, when they left, there was still a four-team college football playoff, but it doesn't really matter. Now it's a 12-team playoff, but both of these teams, I didn't think either was going to be ready to go into the SEC a year from now. Look, look at the situation Steve Sarkeesian took over. It was not pretty. He went 5-7 and seven his first year. Brent Venables goes 6-7 and seven a year ago. And so they've talked publicly, said all the right things about preparing for the SEC. Brent Venables has a little hourglass on his uh, on his uh, uh, stand as a, as a coach, uh, you know, his, his desk as a coach. I don't know why I said stand. But they have an hourglass that says, you know, we're this many days away till the SEC, whatever. And I thought both those schools were crazy. I thought the pathway out of the Big 12 was much easier. But now you look at those two rosters, those two teams, how they're coached. Who do you feel better about over the next five years? Oklahoma or Florida? Both have a second-year head coach. I feel pretty good about Oklahoma. Uh, Texas or whoever. Both these teams are ready. Both these teams have rosters that are able to compete. Now, will they? I don't know. Both could, in, in theory, be having new quarterbacks. But the point is, neither of these programs is going to get left behind. I give both credit because both have figured out a way to win in the present, build towards the future. The future is bright for both. Credit Oklahoma. Credit Oklahoma fans. I was wrong on Brent Venables. All right, that's what I do. Do want to take a quick break. Do want to come back. And when we come back, Talk about the other big game in the state of Texas. Texas A&M, not very good. Alabama, they are in sole possession of first place in the SEC West. Take a quick break. Be right back. All right, I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. I do want to switch gears, and I want to get to the other big game in the state of Texas. No, I'm not talking about UConn's riveting win over Rice. We will get to that. Well, probably never. Uh, instead, I want to get to the big one in the SEC West, Alabama at Texas A&M. 
And this was a game, look, I thought it was a fascinating moment in time for both of these programs, both for the on the field and off the field ramifications. On the field, it goes without saying. These two teams both control their own destiny in the SEC West, only two teams in the West without a conference loss. So whoever wins this game has the easiest path to Atlanta going forward and controls their own destiny. But beyond that, I thought it was an interesting moment in time for Texas A&M. This is a program that has been doubted and been ridiculed and made fun of. And it felt like for the first time in years, there was some real positive momentum going into this game. You dominate two straight SEC opponents to open up league play. You have the talent. The Bobby Petrino hire is working. The offense is rolling. The defense is getting after people. One of the best defensive fronts in college football. Nick Saban is raving all week long about the talent at Texas A&M. And it led to a situation where you add the Texas A&M perspective with the Alabama perspective. Do, have they really figured out the quarterback situation? Can you really win big games with Jalen Milrow? It was a situation where everybody in the media felt like, okay, we're getting behind this Texas A&M team. They might be actually onto something here. And so I bring it up because it felt like a fascinating moment in time. Texas A&M is finally about to get a little bit of national credit. And instead, the exact opposite happens, and Alabama does what they've done to so many SEC teams and big SEC games over the last couple of years. They go to College Station and beat Texas A&M, final score 26-20. to 20. And I want to break down the game, but as I often say, you know, I want to look at both sides of it. But as big as it was for Alabama, to me, it felt much, much, much bigger for Texas A&M. And let me say this. This felt like the game where any person left that hadn't completely given up on Jimbo Fisher, it felt like everybody was like, you know what? I'm officially out on Jimbo. Fair or not, this is just the reality of that game. And I say fair or not because, listen, it's not only Jimbo Fisher's fault that Texas A&M lost this game. I thought Max Johnson did not play well, held on to the ball way too much, did not get rid of the ball, whatever. I didn't think Bobby Petrino had a great game, didn't get the ball in his playmaker's hands. Evan Stewart was quiet, whatever. And part of that's, of course, Alabama's you know great scheming on their own right, so I'm not trying to discredit Alabama. Al- uh, Texas A&M's defense could not stop Jermaine Burton, so it wasn't on Jimbo Fisher. But at the end of the day, there's only one guy in College Station in that building that is paid $9 million a year to win football games at the highest level. They're all responsible for it, but Jimbo Fisher is the only one that gets paid $9 million to do it. And the disappointing part about Saturday is that Jimbo Fisher, the $9 million man, the guy that was brought to College Station to elevate this program to compete for national championships, I thought he looked scared. And bluntly, a little bit confused late in that game. Two things really stand out, uh, you know, almost like what we just talked about with Texas, Oklahoma. The first one, the very controversial punt late in the third quarter. Anybody who watched the game knows what I'm talking about. But for those who don't, Texas A&M had been in control for the early part of the first half into halftime, early part of the second half. They have a 17-10 lead. Alabama ties it at 17-17. Texas A&M has the ball late in the third quarter, and they cross over the 50 into Alabama territory at the Alabama 45. Gets down to fourth and one. You can feel the tension in the stadium. Are they going to go for it? Are they not? Jimbo Fisher elects to punt. Punts the ball back to Alabama. Alabama scores on the next possession. All of a sudden, it is 24 to 17. Texas A&M never has the lead again, never has a tie again, and loses all momentum. And again, 
it felt like in that moment, you could feel the tension in the stadium as far as, is he going to go for it? Is he not? Should he, should he not? Beyond that, there was the final possession of the game, which was a complete disaster. And if you watch the game, you know what I'm talking about. But uh, you're down nine points. And by the way, you're lucky to only only be down nine. But it is still a two-possession game. Late in the game, under two minutes, you get into the red zone. Anaya Smith is like this close to scoring, but he doesn't get it, and you have to regroup. From there, chaos basically ensues. You have a touchdown call back because of a hold. Then, knowing you need two scores, it gets to fourth down, you end up calling a timeout only to kick a field goal, only to kick a field goal. And so you waste a bunch of time. Then you burn a timeout only to kick a field goal when obviously any well-prepared, well-coached team is going to say, hey, if we don't get it on third, get the field goal team out there. Or if we don't get it on third, we're going to use a timeout and go for a touchdown anyway. Matter of fact, you could have argued that after the third down play, they should have tried to kick the field goal to save time and save timeouts. They don't. They get three. Then on top of that, they don't even have to kick the ball on sides. They choose to, and they never get the ball back. Uh, that is how they ended up losing the game. By the way, Alabama, Tommy Reese called a pass play on first down, which if he doesn't call that pass play, uh, Alabama you know, completely runs out the clock. There was one final play where it looked like A&M could get the ball back, whatever. So you have the non-punt. You have the chaos in the red zone. You have the decision to kick the field goal. You have the burn timeout. And it just speaks to exactly what I just said. I don't know where Texas A&M fans go from here with Jimbo Fisher. And bluntly, it feels like he lost every piece of support that he had left. Because at the end of the day, I think what stands out to me, and listen, I'm not an A&M fan. I know people are like, oh, you talk about A&M a lot. I talk about A&M a lot because they're fascinating. But at the same time, what stands out about that, that, that situation to me is a couple things. One, I just thought Jimbo Fisher coach scared, right? Again, it's what we talked about and what I just mentioned in the lead up to this game. You're at home. All those young guys are starting to turn into men. You got guys like Anaya Smith who came back for this season specifically. And you coach scared, right? And it's not like it's year one. It's not like it's year two. It's not like you're trying to survive to beat Alabama. You beat Alabama two years ago. You maybe should have beat them last year in Tuscaloosa. This isn't about proving that you can beat them. This is about going out and taking the win because you want to show America that you're not afraid of them and that you are the best team in the SEC. And so to coach scared, to coach not to win, to punt that football, give the ball back, and then never get a lead back, to mess up time after time, it's just a complete disaster. And I think the most frustrating thing for Texas A&M fans, besides what I just talked about, besides the fact that, as I said, it changes everything, but more than that, you can't trust your coach. That is probably the most frustrating thing, right? And I tweeted this out, and I think some people misconstrued it as a shot at Bama. To be clear, Bama was the better team. Bama deserved to win. But Jimbo Fisher did himself no favors. And so it's just so frustrating because when you're a football fan or a basketball fan or baseball fan or whatever, if you just lose because the other team is simply better and you don't have the dudes, that's a tough pill to swallow, but you sleep better at night than knowing we do have the dudes. They just weren't put in the best position by the guy that's paid $9 million a year to get the job done. And so what's fascinating to me about this game, it completely changes everything for Texas A&M. I'm not smart enough to know if Jimbo Fisher can survive or will survive or is the money there or whatever. 
But think about the, the two worlds, the two concurrent worlds, if you will, that could have been Saturday if you win versus now that you lost. If you win by Monday, you're probably in the top 10, maybe 15, but you completely control the SEC West. You beat Alabama and you look at the rest of the SEC and you say, wait a second now, LSU can't stop anybody. Ole Miss is kind of up and down. We play Tennessee next week, but we can beat them. And you feel like, man, there's a pathway to Atlanta. And by the way, even if we lose one of these games, maybe we don't make the playoff. But remember, we have the two-game cushion on Alabama. And so because of it, we are in great shape to get to Atlanta for our first SEC championship game. And now we can build something for 2023 when all these young guys are now juniors and draft eligible. Instead, you lose. And I got to be blunt. I don't know what the future of this this season is for Texas A&M. Because all of a sudden you lose that game in the manner that you did at home. Now it calls everything into question. You got to go to Tennessee next week. Tennessee is far from perfect, but they're coming off a bye. Um, You know, outside of the Florida game, they have played well, especially at home. I don't know how you can sit there and feel good about that game. Ole Miss. Ole Miss has always given Texas A&M trouble. Now you got to go there, Lane Kiffin, scheme up. We know Lane Kiffin doesn't like Jimbo Fisher. We know Lane Kiffin likes to poke at Jimbo Fisher. We know Lane Kiffin likes to do whatever he can to kind of embarrass Jimbo Fisher, for lack of a better term. You think it's going to be easy there? LSU is not going to be a cakewalk. And so, again, I don't know if today's like the, will Jimbo survive the season? What I do know is this. That game next week in Knoxville, I think it's probably the biggest game of his career. Because if, well, biggest game at Texas A&M. Because if you don't win that game, then all of a sudden you start to look around and say, wait a second now. You're sitting at four and three coming out of that game. And you can't have the season that you wanted to have. What you really wanted this year was to be nine and three, 10 and two, and build some momentum for next year where maybe you have a chance to compete for a national championship. That's how I feel. Maybe an AM fan would disagree. You lose that game, you're four and three, you still have that old miss. At LSU, and you're looking at seven and five, whatever, eight and four. And so to me, I'm not smart enough to know if the money has been raised or can you get the money to buy out Jimbo Fisher. But I just know that everything changed on Saturday and it is not good for Texas A&M. And I think the bottom line that needs to be said is, I don't know how you can feel good about Jimbo Fisher going forward. He wasn't the only reason that you lost that game, but he was the biggest one. And I don't know how you can't be disappointed. Finally, from the Alabama perspective, let me just let me just start. I got to take the L. I said on this show on Friday or Wednesday or Thursday, whenever we talked about it, I said, I think AM's beating Alabama. And so I am the guy. I'm one of many people in the media that picked Alabama. I got to take my medicine. I got to admit that I was just dead wrong on Alabama. And what I also got to say is this. I think that that was one of the most impressive wins of the Nick Saban era. And I think already this has been one of the best coaching jobs of the Nick Saban era as well. And oh, by the way, if I have one big lesson from this this whole game, stop doubting the GOAT, okay? Stop doubting the GOAT. Now, I will say this. I was never somebody that said the dynasty was dead. I was never somebody that said that Nick Saban was going to retire. He doesn't want to deal with whatever. But what I did say at the time was Alabama has to figure out really quick 
what their identity is. After the Texas game, I said, if Jalen Milrose your guy, then you have to change things up to put him in the best position to succeed. If he's not your guy, then you have to put him on the bench. And so I give Alabama a ton of credit because what I think that South Florida game, it's increasingly obvious it was about. It was about seeing what do you have in Tyler Buckner? What do you have in Ty Simpson? And neither showed enough. And what Nick Saban decided in the middle of the season is what we have discussed so much on this show. He basically sat there and said, this is my team's strengths. This is my team's weaknesses. Jalen Milrow is a great athlete who is still learning to play quarterback. My offensive line has not yet proven that they can pass block. Um, you know, and my defense is really good. And so they built a system to accentuate those strengths and highlight those weaknesses. That's what great coaches do. Well, that is what Nick Saban did. Now, to the credit of the players, they're all getting better, right? Jalen Milrow was incredible, and I got to give credit where where it's due because I didn't think he could be as good as he was on Saturday in College Station. He had his best game by a country mile in that game, finishing on the game with um, 321 yards passing, three touchdowns, as I said, Texas A&M had zero answer for Jermaine Burton. I'm not an X's and O guy. I can't tell you how he kept getting open, but credit to Tommy Reese. They figured it out. They figured out where the weak spot on A&M's defense was, and they schemed the crap out of it to take advantage of it. And so I give the players credit because they're getting better. The offensive line is certainly getting better. The defense has been elite all year. But let me also give credit to Nick Saban as well, because to me, this is already one of his best coaching jobs in college football. Or, 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 or in his time in Alabama. And I think that sounds weird to say multiple national championships, whatever. But part of coaching isn't just walking out of the tunnel knowing you have the best team. Part of coaching is what I just said a minute ago. Sometimes you do have a better team, but it's not the team that you thought. And that is what has stood out to me is I think a lot of fans, they've gotten so used to Alabama looking a certain way that they assumed if they don't look that way, that means that they're not good. And that way is obviously you have the NFL caliber quarterback, first round guy, whether it's Bryce Young, whether it's Mac Jones, whether it's Tua Tonga Viola. And we're going to throw the ball all over the field and we're going to score a bunch of points and we're going to be awesome. And Nick Saban realized, I don't have that team. And so, again, he built a team to highlight those strengths, sh- you know, kind of shut down those weaknesses. And in one offseason, he completely fixed the defense with the help of Kevin Steele. And then again, rebuilt the offense two, three, four times already since the spring to put this team in position to succeed. And so I believe this is one of his best coaching jobs. It looks different than what we expected, but it doesn't change the fact that they can still have anything they want this season. They mentioned it during the game. This reminds me of one of those early to mid-2000s Alabama teams just as Lane Kiffin was starting to get there. You had Blake Sims at quarterback one year. You had Jacob Coker at quarterback one year. Remember the year they they had Jacob Coker? Two things happened. One, Derrick Henry won the Heisman because they had to run the ball a million times, and they won a national championship. And I'm not here to sit here and say they're going to win a national championship. But again, you look at the schedule. They have sole possession of first place in the SEC West. They just won the toughest game left on their schedule. They got Tennessee, Ole Miss, and LSU at home going forward. Their only two SEC road games left are Kentucky and Auburn, two games that they should win. So they have to feel pretty good. And they have to feel especially good. They didn't even play their best game on Saturday. That's the crazy part. Saban talked about it after the game. What was the final penalty tally? What was it? 11. I want to make sure I have this right. 
11 penalties for 14 penalties. Oh my goodness, 14 penalties for 99 yards. And so if you get that cleaned up, all of a sudden, like, like it's almost the best case scenario. And it's funny because Nick Saban kind of joked about it after the game, but he basically said, like, we got a lot of good to talk about. But we got a lot of bad to talk about. Who, who, what do you guys want to talk about first? But you can tell that game meant a lot to Nick Saban. And I, I think you can tell how proud he is of this team. And now you look at this team going forward. I'm here to tell you, there is nothing they can't accomplish. They're the favorites in the SEC West. I know Georgia looked great against Kentucky. We'll discuss that momentarily. I think they can beat Georgia in an SEC championship game. Tell me who's the team in college football this year that they can't beat, even on a neutral field. I'd like to see him play Texas again with this version of them. Like to see him play Florida State, who has not been world beater since that LSU game. Would like to see him play Oregon, Washington, whoever. So credit Alabama, credit Nick Saban. And again, I learned my lesson. Alabama fans, I'm wrong. And I'm done doubting the GOAT. Credit Nick Saban. Again, I, I don't know what else there is to say. I think this is one of the best coaching jobs that he has ever done. And it's easy to see the excitement with this team going forward. All right, so what I'm going to do, take a quick break, come back. When we come back, we'll wrap with the rest of a wild, 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 wild day in college football. Uh, we will talk a little bit about Mario Cristobal. What are you doing, bro? What are you doing? Lincoln Riley, you're a mess too. Shame on you. Go sit in timeout. Talk about those games, Kentucky, Georgia, maybe a little bit of Louisville, Notre Dame. Quick break. Be right back. All right. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. So good to be back. Do want to go ahead and wrap. Um, Listen, remember when I opened the show and I said this was the Coaches Gone Cuckoo episode of the Aaron Torres pod? Two weeks ago was Coaches Gone Wild. Ryan Day's just chirping at 86-year-old Lou Holtz. This week was Coaches Gone Cuckoo. Thought Steve Sarkeesian went a little cuckoo in the red zone. Jimbo Fisher went a little cuckoo not punting the football. But there was no more cuckoo moment. And I could argue there was nothing. I don't know that I've ever seen a coaching decision quite like this than what happened with Mario Cristobal and the Miami Hurricanes on Saturday night. For people who maybe don't follow this stuff minute to minute, everything was going right for Miami coming into this weekend, okay? So Miami is undefeated. They beat Texas A&M. They got some real momentum. They're coming out of their bye week. They're healthy. Everybody's playing well. They had a top 10 recruiting class last year. Everything is going right. And oh, by the way, they're undefeated. They play North Carolina next week in what's their first real big uh, ACC game on the slate. So everything's going well. All they got to do is get by little old Georgia Tech who lost to Bowling Green a few weeks ago. And they're in control of the game. Now, it was back and forth. It wasn't Miami's best effort. But I bring it up because they have the ball with under a minute to go. Clock keeps ticking. It gets to about 30 seconds. And Georgia Tech is officially out of timeouts. All Miami has to do is take a knee and the game is over. Just take a knee. Just take it. That's all you got to do. Nothing complicated. No weird math. Nothing. Instead, Miami runs the football. Miami fumbles the football. Georgia Tech recovers. And in two plays, they drive the length of the field for the game winning score. Now, what I will say is a couple things. One, after the game, Mario Cristobal said all the right things. It's 100% on me. 
There's nobody else to blame. Um, the math equated to one thing before the drive and then something happened and we didn't do a good enough job communicating that, oh, by the way, all we have to do is take a knee. Same thing, a couple things stand out. One, there was no one on that headset. There was no one on the headset that when they decided to call a play, somebody didn't jump up and scream, oh, oh, we don't have to call. We don't have to run a play. All we got to do is take a knee. Like, it, it, you know, listen, we can blame Mario Cristobal, but there are however many, a dozen guys on the headset. There are players on the field. Tyler Van Dyke is a third-year senior. How did no one in the entire organization Realize that you don't have to run a play there. It absolutely makes no sense. I don't get it. And so you have that. And because of it, listen, I was talking to my buddy Garrett Carr, like, you know, rights for Aaron Torres online, whatever. He said this, and I think it's right. You can, you can say that it is literally one of the most inexcusable losses ever for that reason. Multiple players, multiple coaches, multi like there's just so many checks and balances that should never allow that to happen. You want to know what the crazy part is though? This isn't the first time it's happened to Mario Cristobal. There was a game a few years ago when he was head coach at Oregon, the exact same situation. They had the lead. All they had to do was run out the clock. They fumble the football. Stanford gets the ball back. So just a tough, tough, tough loss for Miami. Listen, Miami, everything is still ahead of them. I think they've largely overachieved, but that is just one that is such a sucker punch. And that's one where, like, you know, when when my Mario Cristobal left my uh, Oregon, I think Oregon fans were a little bit mad because he was kind of the third straight coach that had left for a quote unquote better job. Chip Kelly, the NFL, Willie Taggart, Florida State, Mario Cristobal, Miami. But at the same time, I think they were also like, eh, we think we're going to be okay without him. They clearly are. So Mario Cristobal, what a moment in time! By the way, probably did not help. The number one recruit in America, Jeremiah Smith, a five-star wide receiver from the Miami area, currently committed to Ohio State. You know where he was on Saturday night at Hard Rock Stadium where this debacle happened. I cannot believe that Miami lost this game. Speaking of cannot believe, um, one team that did win, it's the USC Trojans who beat the Arizona Wildcats 43-41 to in triple overtime. Now, a couple things. One, we have a lot of Arizona fans that listen to this show. Maybe it's because of my basketball, whatever. Arizona fans, I'm sorry. You guys were the better team. You were better coached. You were better prepared. USC gave so many opportunities to win this game. And Arizona probably should have won this game. Now, I know there's controversy in the Arizona program. They were playing a backup quarterback last night. Uh, Jed Fish says that he wants to go back to the starter and nobody's happy with it. But Arizona fans, everything's going to be okay. Jed Fish is the right guy. He's recruiting at a really high level. I don't think a lot of people realize. And oh, by the way, you're going to the Big 12. The Big 12 is going to be a step down from the Pac-12. You're going to be able to win games right away. So Arizona fans, I know it sucks. But really, the story from Saturday night, the story from the LA Coliseum, it was the USC Trojans. And listen, I could do the whole rant about, oh, the defense is going to cost them this and the offense is this and da 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 this and that. But I did it last week. And I'll be blunt, I don't need to do it again. There's no new ground to cover other than for me to say this. USC is not a very good football team right now. And I know what people, oh, they're 6-0. and Oh, they got Caleb Williams. A couple things stand out from Saturday night. One, tell me what they did well, period, on Saturday night. They gave up 500 yards of total offense. 
They had miscue after miscue. Remember, late in the game, they had the ball in the red zone, chance to win it in regulation, fumble a snap, or it wasn't a snap, it was a, a handoff. Um, you know, botch a PAT. They weren't good on special teams. The defense gave up a million yards. And I'll say this, Caleb Williams bailed their butts out late in that game. He was not very good early. This was by far the worst game that he has played maybe in a USC football uniform. And I'll take it a step further. I'm not sitting here saying that Caleb Williams is, you know, a bad player or even that he's regressing. I do think that sometimes he's trying to do a little bit too much. I was talking to a, I always say I'm not a scheme expert. I was talking to a buddy of mine who kind of dabbles in coaching. He said, listen, if you watch like the all 22 coaches tape, there are situations where Caleb Williams has the opportunity to make the easy play, the smart play, the whatever play, the non-sexy play. And he's trying to be the Instagram, YouTube, TikTok star that's making the fancy play that's going to show up on SportsCenter and Big Noon Kickoff every week. And so I just bring it up to say, listen, Caleb Williams is incredible. He's going to be the number one pick, deservedly so. But he is not without fault at all because he struggled for most of this game. The defense is not good. Special teams are not good. And I look at next week. I know they're playing Notre Dame. Notre Dame has lost two of their last three. Easily could be 0-3 in those games. But at the same time, I don't think this USC team is very good. And if Notre Dame doesn't catch them, somebody else will. They play Utah at home the following week. Then they have Cal. Final three games. How about this? Washington at home. Oregon on the road. UCLA at home. Oregon and Washington, I believe, are significantly better than USC. And UCLA is playing really good defense right now. UCLA took care of business against the Washington State Cougars. My Cougars love me those Cougars. You know that. Um, But UCLA is playing really good right now. And so it's hard for me to sit there and say that USC is going to forget. Like, like, let me put it this way. Forget running the gauntlet, like finishing 12 and 0 or 11 and 1 and making the college football playoff. I think they're like a three loss team and it may start this weekend at Notre Dame. This is not a good football team right now. Speaking of Notre Dame, they took it on the chin at Louisville. First of all, from the Louisville perspective, we got to give credit to Jeff Brom, right? And I talked about it on Friday's show. We spent so much time this off season talking about Auburn hiring. He freeze Deion Sanders going to Colorado. Both of those have proven to be excellent hires, but Jeff Brom, you could, you could argue is the most accomplished out of anybody. Now, Hugh Freeze won a lot of games in the SEC. Jeff Brom won a Big Ten West title at Purdue last year. He won eight games at Purdue. You know how hard that is to do? So he goes to Louisville, and they were just so much better than Notre Dame. Like, it wasn't even really that competitive. Like, Notre Dame was going for it at midfield on fourth down in the middle of the third, in the middle of the fourth quarter, because they knew if they didn't score, the game was over. So the game was really over for most of the fourth quarter. So my old buddy, Nick Coffey, who used to co-host this show with me, Nick was basically doing his celebration uh, dance in about the probably about eight or nine minutes left in this game. So credit to Louisville. Listen, you know, there's a lot of good teams in the ACC this year. Louisville's good. Duke's good. North Carolina's undefeated. Um, You know, obviously Florida State is a top five team in the country. And that Miami team, I think, is good even with what happened on Saturday night. Now, from the Notre Dame perspective, you know, let me just say this. Um. I mean, there's a few things. One, I saw a little bit of pushback on Marcus Freeman. To me, this isn't a Marcus Freeman thing. To me, what this is from the Notre Dame perspective, 
Who do you want to be as a football program? And why I bring it up is as follows. Offensive uh, offensive coordinator, if you remember, let me even backtrack. If you remember late in the winter, early winter last year, after the football season ended, I remember I did a segment on Notre Dame because they really dragged their feet trying to find an offensive coordinator. And at the time, they wanted a guy named Andy Ludwig from Utah. Then they found out that he had a massive buyout and they just said, we're not touching him. He had like a $3 million buyout, which for a coordinator is just absurd. Okay. And so I bring it up. They went with this guy, Gerard Parker. I don't know Gerard Parker. Sure. He's a great guy, kids, wife, whatever. Same time. This offense is not good right now. And it points back to me that whole debacle with the quarterback, uh, with the offensive coordinator situation is if you're Notre Dame, and you really want to compete with the big boys because your fans expect you to compete with USC, to compete with Ohio State, to beat these teams. You got to spend like them. And if you mean to tell me that uh, a buyout is going to get in the way of Ohio State getting the guy that they want, or Penn State, or Michigan, or Georgia, or Alabama getting the guys that they want, you're out of your mind. So I don't blame Marcus Freeman when he doesn't really have the offensive coordinator that he wants. And when his team turns the ball over five times, Sam Hartman, listen, he was my preseason Heisman pick. I think it's safe to say probably not going to happen at this point. Had three interceptions, Notre Dame five turnovers as a whole. No one to blame on Notre Dame but the players themselves, but the coordinators. I, I don't blame Marcus Freeman. It's just there's only so much you can do as a head coach. I, there was also a moment, by the way, where they could have gotten off the field and maybe made a run. I think they were down like 10 points. And they had a couple dumb penalties that led to a score that was basically what sealed the game. But like, I'm not here. This isn't a bash Marcus Freeman thing. I just think he's in a tough spot. Couple other results. Uh, one, Georgia, Kentucky. Georgia just destroyed Kentucky. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to like uh, Kentucky fans. I know were very frustrated, felt like they really beat themselves in a lot of situations. I just think this was one. I'm not excusing Kentucky. But I just think this was one where Georgia, they haven't played great, struggled against Auburn, struggled against South Carolina. And I think they just want to have their moment where they kind of let everybody know, you know what, Georgia, we're fine. We're still elite. To their credit, I think Carson Beck is really evolving into a very good quarterback, 28 of 35, 389 yards, four touchdowns. Um, And Georgia is the deserved number one team in the country at this point. Started that way. Toughest test so far. They take care of business against Kentucky. From the Kentucky perspective, a couple things. One, um, I think a couple things are true. One, you did beat yourself. You, first of all, you ran into a better team, and that sucks and it stinks, but it's the reality. At the same time, you did beat yourself. A couple dumb penalties. Devin Leary still has not figured it out, and obviously Georgia shut down Ray Davis. I will also say, um, and this is something I've been critical of, and I tweeted this, is that you know I do think that when he comes to Mark Stoops, like two things are true about Mark, Mark Stoops. Okay. What he's done at Kentucky to elevate that program is literally unprecedented. Nothing in our lives, at least my life has ever been like it. And they're at a place as a program that I never thought they could get to. At the same time, what is also true, he coaches scared in big games, especially big road games. Right. And I think there's a couple things. It's one thing to be at home with your home crowd. It's one thing to be on the road playing Vanderbilt where you know you have a talent advantage. But I feel like it's almost like what I said about Jimbo Fisher earlier. You go back and you look, and it feels like too often he plays scared 
and plays not to lose rather than to win. Plays not to get embarrassed rather than to win. There was a moment late in the first qu- first half, excuse me, where Georgia is in the red zone. And you're sitting there wondering, okay, like, is Kentucky going to take some timeouts? We know that Georgia is going to score, but you got to leave some time left on the clock so that you can drive and try to get points before halftime. It ends up, you know, there's about a minute, minute, 10, minute, 20 left, whatever it ends up being. I, you know, I don't have all the exact details in front of me. Instead, you let the clock run out. Then you immediately go three and out, including a couple pass plays. Georgia gets the ball back. It ends up kicking a field goal. And so basically, by not trying to stop Georgia from getting seven, um, you end up giving giving up three more without uh, without giving yourself a realistic chance to uh, to score points. So, listen, Georgia was the better team; they deserve to win. I do think Kentucky fans are frustrated today, and I think justifiably so. Mark Stoops is a great coach; he's elevated that program, but too often in these big games, he just coaches scared, coaches not to lose rather than to win. Two more results: uh, one, Colorado took care of ASU. You can say Colorado is over-discussed. They're not overrated. They're 4-2 and two, um, and very impressive so far. Really quickly, by the way, I did a YouTube-only segment on Deion Sanders. Had some crazy reaction to it, to that game. And I give him credit. Really went after his players. Basically said being good isn't good enough. So that was an interesting one. And then finally, I want to wrap with Michigan. Listen, I'm going to do probably a standalone segment on Michigan, maybe for the Wednesday show. Michigan is destroying everybody. And I I get the notion that like, you know, they haven't played anybody. They're they're six wins, East Carolina, UNLV, Bowling Green, Rutgers, Nebraska, and Minnesota. But they're killing everyone. And I think there is something to that. And when I watch them, they are such a well-oiled machine. They are such a juggernaut. They are so elite on both sides of the ball. Currently number three in the country in total defense. Currently number one in the country in scoring offense, giving up under a touchdown per game. And then still on the other side of things, taking care of business offensively, where they are putting up on average. Let me look look this up, make sure I have this correct. They are putting up on average almost 38 points per game, which is in the top 20 nationally. And so I know they haven't played anybody, but at some point we got to give them credit for just destroying everybody in their path. I think they're the best team in college football that I've seen. Now, I don't think they're like head and shoulders. There's no doubt about it. Like, I think if they're on a neutral field with Georgia, Georgia could beat them, maybe would beat them. I think Texas would give them trouble. I think Oregon maybe would give them trouble. But that is a really good football team. They are dominating everybody. All right. That was a long, whoo. These Monday episodes, man, put some gray hairs on you. But it is a fun time of year. I say it every Monday. It's so nice to have real stuff to talk about as opposed to, you know, the June, July episodes, which I love, but you're also sitting there, um, sitting there saying like, man, oh man, oh man. Um, it just feels like, what are we going to talk about? So I bring it up cause it's great to have these Monday uh, shows back. They're loaded. They're jam packed. I might even have to do a Tuesday show this week. Cause it just feels like there's so much that I didn't even get to, but anyway, We can get to all that later in the week. It is time for me to get out of here, at least for now. This is the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. If you're not subscribed, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. 
Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. If you have questions for the show, also make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. YouTube channel is bumping. We are closing in on 27,000 subscribers. Cannot thank you all enough for your support. And oh, by the way, on top of that, I do want to quickly thank our partners, DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook. Remember, new customers, you can bet $5 on any game, get $200 in bonus bets instantly when you use the code TORRES. That's TORRES, T-O-R-R-E-S. That said, that is all for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. It is time for me to get out of here. Appreciate everybody's support, and I'll be back later this week. This might be one of those weeks where there's enough to do a Tuesday episode. Stay tuned. If not, we'll be back on Wednesday. Shout out to Torque. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. Still hates it. So I hear. Shout out to JJ Reddick, UF head. Unblock me, bro. I'll be back later this week. New episode, Aaron Torres Pop.